Well, Holy Spirit, as you have spoken throughout countless generations to your people, and you have given us your written word that you continually speak through over and over again, speak now. Speak through your words. Make them come to life in our hearts and in our church, and continually form us into the image of the one who lived and died and rose for us. In Jesus' name, amen. When my kids were younger, some still do this, if my shoes are by the door and not put away maybe where they're supposed to be, sometimes they'll put their feet into them, and when they're really young, they can just put, you know, entire shoe on and then walk, step right into my shoes with their whole shoes on, and they get a big grin, right? Oh, I put on Dad's shoes, and they're, you know, giant. And they, you know, kind of grin and, and laugh and smile and, and clomp around like wearing water skis until they, they trip or, or fall over, wearing someone else's shoes. A lot of stories in the Bible, and particularly a lot of Old Testament stories, when you hear them, when you read them, they, they kind of invite you to do that, don't they? I don't know, when, while I was reading the story of Balaam, you think, well, boy, what would I do if I was in this situation? Or A lot of stories invite us to do that, right? Put on someone's shoes and say, what would I do if that happened to me? And, and we start to do that. If that were me, what would I do? Or, or uh, who am I in this story? We're going to do a little bit of that with the Balaam story. A little bit of wondering, well, do, do Balaam's shoes fit? Do Balak's shoes fit? Whose shoes actually should fit? That is, as we're invited at times by stories in the Bible to, to try on the coat or try on the shoes, and, and sometimes it, it's uh, incriminating and we repent, we also have to find what are the right shoes to put on? Where are we in the story of God? And what does that mean? Because Finding our place in the story of God that is putting the right shoes on in this story is always far better. So Balaam, uh, how many of you paid attention while I read the whole thing? I shouldn't ask that, y'all. <laughs> Might get no hands. <laughs> I know it's a little long. I'll recap some of it. And this guy, Balaam, is not an Israelite. He's not a God-fearer or God-follower. He is a prophet for hire. So has some sort of... Uh, sorcery skills from who knows where. Uh, I fear I know where. And he's a prophet for hire to the highest bidder. And so Balak then, the king of Moab, has this problem. And that is Moab is right next to the Jordan River. The, the Israelites are encamped on the plains of Moab. It's right before they cross into the promised land. And they've already defeated a couple of peoples on the way. God is with them. And the king of Moab, Balak, is, is afraid. Like, i, I got to deal with this. And so he did what he knew is call in the big guns, you know, take out a loan and pay Balaam to come on down and curse them. And then he can, you know, defeat them, destroy them. And so as this happens, uh, he, you know, pays Balaam and then he has this dream overnight. And the angel of the Lord appears and says, no, 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 you're not going to do that. So he says, you know, okay, I can't do that. You know, their God appeared to me and he seems, you know, seems Pretty real and pretty powerful. And then Balak says, well, everybody's got their price. You know, what is it? You know, and so he sends more people to offer more money. And then, okay, he goes. And then it's on his way, riding is where the famous donkey story happens, right, that the donkey sees the angel of the Lord standing in the way of the road and goes off into a field. And then he gets mad and hits the donkey. And then 
angel of the Lord again is there, and there's nowhere to go. And so he goes up against his wall in the vineyard and hurts his foot, and he gets mad and smacks the donkey again. And, and then uh, there's nowhere to go, and the donkey just sees the angel again and just lays down. And what I think is the wildest and funniest part isn't the talking donkey. It's when the donkey starts talking, Balaam is so like upset or something, he doesn't even notice. He doesn't go, oh, a talking donkey. He just talks back, right? Donkey says, what are you doing? I've been good to you my whole, whole life, haven't I? What are you doing? He's like, I'm mad at you. You, you, you took me, you're making me look bad. Oh, well, have I done anything like that? Have I acted funny in my entire life with you? No. Huh. <laughs> so then he gets there, and he kind of still is playing the fence. Says, well, God, you know, the, the true God said, I'm only going to speak blessings. So, but he still goes. And so then Balak takes him to count them three different high mountains, hills surrounding the plains where the people are. Three different times. First time was, okay, I brought you, I paid you, brought, brought you all the way in, you know, flew you in to do this job and whew, curse them. And he opens his mouth and, and blesses them. And Balak said, wait, no, 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 this is not what I paid you for. Okay, come somewhere else, now you can see another group of them, curse them again. And he does, and blessings come out. Wait, wait, no, 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 this is not how it's going. So you have a recap of Balaam being mad three times at the donkey for doing it wrong, and then Balak being mad at Balaam, see how that works. A third time, and then uh, the bonus prophecy isn't after the third blessing, then he speaks and it prophesies a star that's going to lead people to the true leader, true king of Israel born later. Prophecy of the, the star that leads the, the wise men. Balaam, this, this pagan prophet, prophesies this is wild stuff here. So what about Balaam's shoes? Could you see yourself, maybe not as a uh, prophet for hire, but Balaam has more or values money more than he values morals. And so you might look at the extreme version of Balaam. Oh, no, that's not me. But has there been something that you've wanted so badly in life that you were willing to compromise your character to get it? Or if there was something that you've wanted so badly, and if that opportunity comes, you'd say, you know what, yeah, I'd, I'd cut some moral corners to get that. Well, then Balaam's shoes might be fitting a little bit. If there's ever been something that you wanted so bad, and it might be money, but, but it could be some uh, privileged position of power, of authority, or, or it might just be a relationship or love, and, and you're willing to compromise all sorts of things to get what you really want. That's Balaam. If you are offered what your heart really desires, what people are you willing to trample, what, what lies might you be willing to tell, or what corners would you be willing to cut to get there? And one lesson I think Balaam teaches us is how blinding sin is. He is so blinded, he doesn't even realize that uh, his donkey's talking, and he starts talking back as if it's a person. Sin is so blinding that if you tell one lie, pretty soon you'll tell ten and tell a hundred. Or if you're willing to be dishonest in one place, you're probably going to be dishonest in other places. Or, like Balaam, you think you can have it both ways. You can sort of cheat the system. Like, okay, God appeared to me, so I know I you know, have to say good things. Uh, but I'm still going to accept the money. I'm still going to go, and I'll, I'll try to you know, swindle myself through this somehow. 
And then, then you wonder, right, Balaam, how dense do you have to be to need a talking donkey and an angel of the Lord appearing to you uh, over four times? Is it take, how much trouble do you really have just to do God's will? Okay, that's Balaam. What about Balak, the king who, who hired him? If Balaam's shoes uncomfortably might you know, fit sometimes or not, what about Balak? Balak is the king, the little king, with great fear. And he's willing to do anything to keep his kingdom. Fear can make us do weird things, right? Fear can drive us to strange places and to do strange things that we otherwise might not do. Balak is afraid of Israel. They're, they're large. They've defeated other people. And he needs to curse them and defeat them and get rid of them because they're there and, and he's afraid of them. And maybe for us, it's fear of failure will lead you to cheat on all sorts of things. Or a failure or a fear of being alone will make you compromise all sorts of things in an ungodly relationship. Or fear of not having enough will make you greedy and hoarding. And, or fear of looking old will make you spend money, all sorts of money on looking not old. And if only we committed the same kind of time and money into being godly and wise beyond our years, not just worried about not looking our years. Balak was this little king with this great fear that would do anything just to get what he wanted. And maybe his shoes fit, for some of you, a little bit. Now, I would say those pairs might fit here and there at times. But there's another pair of shoes that are really the ones we're supposed to wear. Where do we fit in this story? Let me set this scene Israel, again, is on the plains of Moab. That's, you know, right next to the Jordan River. They're about to cross over. They've done their 40 years in the wilderness. They've come out of Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai. They were there one year, and then they were in the wilderness 39-ish. And so they finally left. The first generation of people who left Egypt who were woefully unfaithful to God after everything God did to save them, they have died, and the next one is about to go in. And here they are. They're, they're going towards the promised land. God is leading them. Moses is going to die. Joshua is going to take over. And if I think, where am I really in this story? I'm probably one of the Israelites, right? We're God's people today. God's church, God's people. They are God's people then. You and I are probably one of those Israelites that are encamped. And there's probably well over a million, two million total in the plains. We're one of them. We're one of God's people that God has saved and brought and is leading. So we're probably most like one of the Israelites. Now, here's where it gets a little more uncomfortable. Have God's people done a good job of obeying God? Uh, pleasing God, doing God's will, uh, being thankful, trusting. Have they been good at this? No. How many times does God call his people stiff-necked, grumbling? So they grumbled again. They trust for five minutes. This is in the book of Numbers, which might be one of the least well-known, except we quote it about every Sunday. The benediction is from the book of Numbers. God says to Aaron, say this to my, bless my people with these words. God's people have been blessed ever since with those words. But the rest of the book of Numbers is this whole litany of unbelief. 
It is an analysis of unbelief. It is God's people over and over and over again not trusting God, not seeing the goodness of what God has done, not trusting God's purposes. There's seven rebellions right in the middle, and they're grumbling against Moses, even his brother Aaron and sister Miriam are, are grumbling at him. They just don't tr- And yes, there's consequences. There's always consequences for sin and not trusting God. They just can't seem to just trust God. And it also makes me think, you know, that, that actually is my worst problem is not trusting God. I think my worst problem is some other things, but our worst problem is actually unbelief. It's, it's a failure to, to trust in what God has done and the goodness of God leading you. Okay, so if you and I are Israelites, in this story, we're encamped down on the plains of Moab. This story happens up on the hills and further where Balaam lives and comes along uh, with, with Balak. Uh, so I want to ask you, if we are Israelites on the plain, what do we actually know in real time about the story that's happening? If you're an Israelite encamped on the plains of Moab, what do you actually know about the Balaam-Balak story as it happens? Nothing. Yeah, I see some of you shaking your heads. You know nothing. Balaam's from, you know, further north. Balak's the king of Moab. Uh, you're, you know, living your life down in the... You know nothing. So to get it straight here, God's people who have been disobedient and grumbling and unfaithful and idolatrous, after God saving them from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, feeding them manna and quail in the desert, water from rocks, leading them, they're about to be into the promised land, And this whole time, God's people are are undeserving, untrusting whiners. And meanwhile, at the same time, as they're encamped, or were encamped, on the plains of Moab, King Balak is afraid and plotting their destruction of all of God's people down in the valley and paying Balaam to come in and curse, and they have no idea... Of this whole story that takes like five chapters, huge part of the rest, the last part of Numbers, what God is doing to protect them. God says, these are my people. I love them. I will save them. I made a promise to Abraham. You, you heard echoes of it. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. God made a promise to Abraham to bless the whole world through him. And so God is going to protect his people. So this story has two layers. There's, there's the story kind of, of above and, a, and the story below. And they both go on, but if we're the Israelites in the plain, we're, we're on the uh, below level, and, and we have no idea what goes on up here in the hills. And that God is fiercely protecting his people, saving them from destruction. And, and when Balaam and Balak set to curse, he, God changes it to bring blessing. And when the king tries to to destroy, God brings even more blessing and then even prophesies the coming of the ultimate blessing. And you see what great lengths God has gone to protect his people from harm. And they have no idea. The angel sent to Balaam in a dream, the angel of the Lord, three times on the road, the the talking donkey, of course. And then finally, Balaam gets there and and he still opens his mouth and, and 
Instead of cursing, he blesses over and over again. What great lengths God has gone to save his chosen people and protect them because he loves them. And meanwhile, God's people are down below in the valley, in the plains, oblivious to everything. And not only are they oblivious, they're grumbling at God. They're grumbling at their leaders, and they're not trusting in God, and they're just being bad. And yet that promise to Abraham, through you and your offspring, I will bless the whole world. God protects them because he's going to send the fulfillment of all of those promises because God keeps his promise, and that's Jesus. And so Balaam, this pagan prophet for hire, ends up prophesying of Jesus and the star that's going to send others from around the world, the wise men, to see Jesus. And Jesus is going to forgive every sin, every rebellion, every regret, every grumble. And Jesus lived and died while so many were oblivious to him. And he still loves you and still forgives you even when we're oblivious and we don't know and when we grumble. You see, Ephesians 2 says it this way, God being rich in mercy, great, with the great love that, that which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Romans 5, while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You could say ungodly, grumbling sinners on the plains of Moab, me and you included. Romans goes on, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though somebody might. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or how about Isaiah 53? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to our own way and the Lord laid on him. The iniquity of us all. So yes, I think those shoes fit and they're supposed to fit. If you and I are God's people, yes, I am an Israelite grumbling in the desert, grumbling at what I think God owes me, deserves me or, uh, to give me, and, and sinning and disobeying, and at the same time completely oblivious to all the things God has done to save me. Jesus died forgiving those who were murdering him. And now when you see that all of this time, even while we were oblivious or angry or grumbling, that's what God's character is like, that he would still protect them. That Jesus would still bleed and die for you and for me. You see the heart of God, which is wholly different than my heart. And my heart only becomes like God's when the Holy Spirit connects me to Jesus and his cross and makes me more like him. But can you, now that you see the two layers going on, can you see your life differently? That if we are down in the valley maybe grumbling at God, can you see that maybe there are times when you have no idea the great lengths that God is going to up in the hills to protect you, to care for you, and to guide you and guard you? 
the whole time God, that they were grumbling, God was out there protecting them in miraculous ways. Can you trust God with the things you don't understand? Can you trust God with the things in your life that you don't understand? Can you trust God when, when things don't work out as you hoped? Everyone who's ever lived has unfulfilled hopes and dreams. And the best ones will be fulfilled when Christ returns. But can you trust God when things don't work out as you hoped? Can you trust God when the relationship ends? Or when the diagnosis is bad? Or when the letter in the mail isn't what you hoped? Or when someone else gets chosen over you? When things don't go the way you want? You and I actually have, have no idea what other things God is doing. And the ways God has protected you from evil, or maybe God has sent angels, like he has in this case, to protect you and save you and other people to guide and to guard you. You and I have no idea. But we do know that God is rich in mercy. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And by grace you are saved. And so yes, your God is leading you and your life in the ways that he thinks is best, even though you're like the Israelites on the plain and can't see what's going on up in the hills. When you don't understand or when you want to grumble, you can trust God. 